With climate change coming down all around us, it's clearly time to get off fossil fuels. Isn't it time to go with emission-free nuclear power once again? Well, take a listen. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Nuclear power is now being called green energy. That's the new line from what had been a dead-end industry since 1979's Three Mile Island near meltdown. That was some bad PR for the well-funded industry, and it sank into a decades-long coma. But today's young people have no memory of Three Mile Island or Chernobyl. The world has changed a lot since then, and today we must face the serious threat of climate change. The nuclear proponents of the 2020s say today's nukes, oh, they're nothing like the old nukes. They're touting smaller SMRs, small modular reactors, as being far better than the old nuclear behemoths, which the anti-nuclear movement had so famously and effectively fought. The nuclear proponents of today claim that unlike coal, oil, and gas, nukes are emission-free. They're appealing to environmentalists to support them this time. And some are taken in by this new packaging. Solar and wind are great, but let's get real, folks, right? That hippy-diffy stuff is just not enough to do the job. That's what they still want us to believe, that nukes have an essential place as we fight global warming caused by fossil fuel emissions. They are a temporary holdover, and they should be acceptable, so they say. Today, well... We have no choice but to implement new, realistic, Earth-sustaining solutions. And powerful forces are trying to get us to believe that the new 21st century nuclear power is an integral component of at least a short-term answer to climate catastrophe. But is it really? Along with the well-funded, revitalized nuclear bureaucracy, today we're also seeing the rise of something called the Clamshell Alliance, the widespread grass move movement that so effectively threw a wrench into the billion-dollar designs of the nuclear industry. With us today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Paul Gunter, policy analyst and spokesperson for Beyond Nuclear. He was also one of the first 18 members of the Clamshell Alliance to be arrested for civil disobedience at the Seabrook site way back in 1976, along with my dear departed hero and brother, Rennie Cushing. Gosh, I still miss him. Paul, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive today. Hey, thank you, Bert. It's much appreciated. What explains what a newly revitalized clamshell is calling an unholy enthusiasm for nuclear power that has sprung up? Is it the same old money interests of the nuclear power industry? Or have they done some effective PR to add new boosters who call themselves green? Tell us about that, please. Well, Bert, it's really um, a phenomenon. Uh, you know, this industry in particular has had a uncanny ability to rebrand itself. You know, originally it was going to be too cheap to meter um, back in the 1960s. And, you know, today it's become too expensive to matter. Yeah. And the um, but still the industry um, and its political champions on Capitol Hill and even in the White House today uh, are 
you know, compensating for the fact that private investment won't touch nuclear power right. uh, because of its uncertainty, but it's being replaced now by, um, you know, the uh, federal taxpayer uh, through the uh, Infrastructure Act and, and other um, federal bailout programs that are pumping billions of dollars into uh, what essentially is an energy black hole. We've mm -hmm. seen for decades now that the more uh, you put into this industry, uh, the more you lose. Um, let's just remember that the nuclear renaissance that was promoted in 2005 by the Energy Policy Act of 2005 um, promised uh, federal lo loan guarantees, production tax credits, all of this financed by U.S. taxpayers. Um, it, it did uh, promote utilities to revive what had been the, um, you know, the, the complete lapse of new applications, as you pointed out earlier. But it, they got 34 new reactors in the hopper through promised applications by 2007. You know, now here we are 2024, and of those 34 units that had been promised, only one is actually operational. Um, this, uh, that's in Georgia at Vogel Units 3. Vogel Unit 4, another one of these behemoth and probably last of the behemoths mm. um, is, um, you know, almost complete. But um, what was promised for these two units at $14 billion mm. for these two Westinghouse reactors um, is now projected between somewhere $35 billion to $40 billion to mm. complete in total. Uh, so uh, it, you know, has again demonstrated that this industry has no control over its promise of uh, cost of completion, and absolutely, um, un it's unreliable for projecting when these projects will ever be complete. Mm. So that's, you know, that's just. Um, now, now we've gone from nuclear renaissance to what they're calling a nuclear enhancement. Ah. Uh, but again, it's the same reframing mm -hmm. of uh, jargon and a massive media program um, where, you know, it's difficult for those of us who continue to challenge uh, the these false promises and economic losses um, to get a word in edgewise uh, in a, before the uh, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, or, you know, other major media outlets. Wow. That's so, there's so much there. I did not know that the Infrastructure Act uh, includes nuclear. Is that right? I hadn't heard that. Yes, there are. There's money in there to even. I mean, one of the current issues that we're fighting. There's money that's been promised by the Department of Energy um, to restart a closed reactor, 
that was uh, two years ago closed down because it was uneconomical and mm-hmm. uh, has now been promised uh, over one and a half billion dollars um, through the uh, the Biden uh, revival program to restart the Palisades nuclear power plant, which is probably one of the more embrittled reactors uh-huh. in the in the country now. Um, but it's uh, and it was supposed to be decommissioned, but now um, U.S. Secretary Granholm has in- injected, um, um, you know, a, a promise of a billion, and this is the initial promise, along with the state of Michigan, Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, again bolstering uh, state taxpayer bailouts for this reactor. So um, there's also um, startup money for uh, small modular reactors mm-hmm. uh, to, and also to entice uh, per, uh, power purchase programs um, uh, for, uh, you know, um, I guess the last failure that was demonstrated was the um, Utah Associated Municipal Power Supplier um, that uh, primarily based by electric co-ops in Utah, but also seven, a total of seven Western states to um, receive um, more than a billion dollars from the Department of Energy, again, through, the, through federal bailouts to entice them into uh, venturing into buying a uh, small modular reactor project mm-hmm. that was to be sited on the Idaho National Laboratory. That's a free site offered by the Department of Energy to build the, the um, poster child for these small modular reactors. And the project was being financed uh, for um, constru- you know for licensing construction. But also power purchases were being offered to entice customers to become involved. And these, you know, some uh, 27 municipalities. But even before the project could get off of the drawing board, the costs were already accelerating um, and frightened the municipal uh customers uh, who started leaving the contract at every affordable exit point to the point where just earlier this year, the uh, project was was canceled. So this was a power uh, point project, even without a shovel in the ground, has already been canceled on what we're calling small mirage reactors uh-huh. um, is the, you know, what really SMR stands for when in fact, what we're, what we're, you know, what we should be seeing is small, the small modular renewable uh-huh. program. Uh-huh. That makes, I, I think a lot of sense. And, you know, you talk about throwing good money after bad and, and this uh, energy black hole, just in terms of economics, it seems like without the the government backing it up, 
these these things probably wouldn't happen. I mean, they couldn't. Most uh, businesses, virtually all businesses, need to be able to buy insurance. But uh, the Price-Anderson Act of the early 1950s uh, made it so that uh, nuclear power doesn't need to go out on the market and, and buy their own insurance. I wanted to ask about that and then get to the small modular reactors. So if, if you could talk about Price-Anderson a little bit. Right. Well, um, unfortunately, uh, Price-Anderson, um, again, developed a federal uh, policy uh, back in 1957, uh, were it not for the federal government picking up um, the the bulk of the liability for a severe uh, nuclear accident were it to happen, we would have never built the first reactor. Right. And that has now consistently been renewed. It was to have sunsetted on December 31st, 2025, uh, after a 20... 20- uh year renewal um, back um, in uh, uh, 2005. Um, And uh, so last year, the um, Congress, both chambers, uh, started uh, legislation to extend the Price-Anderson Act um, and um, the Senate passed it in the summer of last year um, as a uh, a rider on the National Defense Policy Act as must pass. Mm. So, um, and that passed through the Senate. A dem- I would remind you, a Democratic-controlled uh, mm, yeah, Senate right. without a single public hearing. It then wow. went to the House side, um, and um, it was, uh, the the House culled the Price-Anderson Act out of the Defense Authorization Act, and as a standalone bill, uh, along with a um, advancing nuclear, new nuclear plants, um, they passed it, uh, 365 to 36 in the in the house uh, um, and um, those two bill the Senate bill and the House bill then went to reconciliation mm-hmm. uh, to the White House who um, in uh, March of this year on a Saturday I believe it was March 23rd uh, off the top of my head, um, Biden approved it, uh, and uh, it was reconciled to extend Price-Anderson coverage um, to 2065. So God, they've expanded wow. it by 40 years, and um, they have now um, raised the limited liability coverage for the next nuclear accident, not if, but when Mm -hmm. it occurs, um, to $16.1 billion. That sounds like a lot of money, uh, even for a limited liability insurance program, but we need to be reminded that the Fukushima Daiichi accident is now 13 years um, in 
uh, and still in progress. We don't even really know where the melted reactor cores are in those three reactors, and it's already projected at uh, $153 billion. So $16.1 billion is a small fraction um, but if you look at Chernobyl, it's well over 600 billion now. And again, these are, you know, still projected um, decades into the future, if not hundreds of years into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not you can ever throw enough money uh, at the radiological contamination, um, the dislocation of masses amounts of population that have been uh, evacuated and and unable to return and and because of that the dislocation of entire economies uh commercial and industrial and residential um dis- e- economic dislocation you know that's really we're talking countless billions of dollars and it seems like this stuff is just being swept under the rug. If you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the latest iteration of the nuclear industry uh, with uh, Paul Gunter, who is policy analyst and spokesperson for Beyond Nuclear. The uh, nuclear industry is positively giddy in moving forward with what they call small modular reactors. In a letter to the editor of the New York Times, Kenneth Peterson, who is president of the American Nuclear Society, wrote, it's clear that even if we can manufacture or import solar panels and wind turbines, we can't deploy them fast enough, end of quote. And he calls for getting on with building those small modular reactors. Uh, they're not the same old big behemoths like there have been in the past. What, what, what is, what's wrong with the small modular reactors? They're not different enough? Well, Bert, originally the first designs for uh, nuclear power atomic power, as it was called then, right. uh, and still basically the same technology of enriched uranium mm-hmm. uh, being used to uh, in a fission process. Those reactors were um, in the in, were originally um, the commercial program was developed out of the U.S. Navy's propulsion system reactors. Uh, so they were they were small. But when they tried to go to commercial scale on these smaller reactors, they couldn't make them economical. So the industry began to ramp up what they called building nuclear power on economies of scale, where you know more concrete, more steel, larger uh, facilities were designed to make the cost of production of electricity cheaper. Um, and that's, and uh, that's what lent to the expression too cheap to meter because right. you know we would we would build these on a larger scale. However, um, from the very get-go, you know when the when generation one failed because they were too small, generation two, well, Seabrook, New Hampshire, is a generation two uh, 
pressurized water reactor, and along with larger boiling water reactors, um, they quickly uh, maxed out their um, their projections and lost control of the cost of construction mm -hmm. as well as the the inability to uh, accurately project time to completion. And um, that, uh, you know, just about half of all of the reactors that were ordered between 1969 and uh, 1996 were never completed. They were uh, uh, either abandoned um, uh, in, in mid-construction or their applications were withdrawn um, but, um, you know, and that's where, that's where Wall Street completely lost confidence in investing uh, privately in mm -hmm. this, uh, what was recognized as a boondoggle. Are they, but is Wall Street more open to these small modular reactors? Aren't they different enough? Well, um, you know, the, uh, the original pilot, uh, that I mentioned, New Scale, was <clears throat> a 77 megawatt pressurized water reactor. So despite the fact that, you know, Seabrook is a pressurized water reactor, but, uh, you know, this, this particular nuclear technology has been around for decades, uh -huh. going back to um, the 19... Uh, late 50s um but um you'd think that they would be able to have developed it to do you know to you know basically come up with something that's um economically affordable but um you know you take the uh, some other examples um the uh the uh bill gates's uh natrium reactor uh he's the uh got a pilot project called the Terra Power and he but he's even the entrepreneur that he is he's still looking to get um, two billion dollars from the you know the uh, Department of Energy federal bailout that's been legislated uh, to share costs between private and government uh, to come up with a sodium cooled reactor. Um, now, the sodium-cooled re fast reactors, these are non-light water reactors. Rather than using water to moderate the reaction and to cool the reactor, they're, they're using liquid sodium, um, a, a liquid metal. Uh -huh. Well, you know, if you, um, uh, if you are familiar with chemistry, if you expose sodium... Um, with water, it is highly combustible. No. Um, and um, so uh, we've already seen a number of accidents earlier in earlier models of sodium-cooled fast reactors that um, have, you know, had accidents involving um, sodium-cooled. So, you know, here we go again. They're saying, they're talking about new designs, advanced reactors from 
uh, blueprints that date back to the 1950s mm. and 1960s. Oh, great. So, so on it goes. Again, this is part of the rebranding that, um, you know, just basically paints a new window dressing onto um, these previously failed designs with a new a promise that this time we're going to make them affordable and we're going to make them faster. And the, the other thing about the sodium-cooled reactor is that it also was the original dual-purpose reactor for making nuclear weapons uh, grade uh-huh. plutonium uh-huh. Um, for um, and using the byproduct heat discharge from that process to make electricity so you know again we're now so bill gates is now talking about introducing um for export uh sodium cooled fast reactors as a new product that he wants to start immediately um selling to the middle east as an export so we're gonna you know again uh, one Mm. of the features here is that we seem to have forgotten uh, that the whole process of building these SMRs is going to exacerbate the proliferation of nuclear weapons globally. Mm. Yeah, that is a, a byproduct. Always has been interesting how it's a new dressing on an old design. And, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, it's something real. It's a big cause of the disastrous global warming that we're seeing now on a daily basis in terms of floods, rising sea levels, more intense storms. These things are happening. And this uh, Peterson fellow from the uh, nuclear industry says that nuclear power is a non-emitting source of energy, of electricity. I mean, we, we have to stop these emissions that are causing the, uh, the global climate change. Doesn't that add weight to Peterson's arguments that nuclear is a non-emitting technology? I mean, they produce carbon-free energy day and night. What's your response? Well, you know, first of all, it's not carbon-free. Um, they're manipulating the uranium fuel chain where the... Uh, you know, you start with the uranium with the uranium extraction process. Right. But let's be clear: no energy footprint, renewables, nuclear, coal, gas, n- or even hydro. You know, they all need concrete, steel. Uh, you know, they involve a lot of extractive industry. So, carbon-free again is a is a Right. is a, a misrepresentation of what any energy production uh, product is. You know, you we can talk about smaller carbon footprints, but carbon-free is, is, again, a false rebranding. In fact, when you look at the uranium, when you factor in the uranium fuel chain um, and um, – the cost of uh, construction and you know maintaining the um, the the back end of mm-hmm. nuclear industry with nuclear waste management into the future, um, 
the, the it's still a larger footprint than renewables. So, you know, granted, there are no smokestacks on nuclear power plants. That's what they're hoping you will focus on. Uh. But you know, it, the the reality is is that while and it's true, um, the um, if you average out all the studies right now on nuclear power um, and, uh, you know, using the highest grade of uranium mm. out there, uh, the carbon footprint is about 64 grams of, of CO2 per kilowatt hour, whereas with uh, a coal-fired, it's about 1,000 grams of CO2 per uh, kilowatt hour. Mm. But with with wind, it's three to eight grams of uh-huh. uh, carbon CO2 per kilowatt hour. So, you know, you while it's while nuclear is less than coal, right. um, that we're still talking about being able to reduce carbon emissions quicker, faster, more economical, and more reliably by by moving to um, renewable industry. And that's now including the, um, you know, storage capacity, which is becoming cheaper and, and marketing quicker now. So renewables with storage, with efficiency and conservation, that's really the 21st century approach to mitigating climate change. Interesting how those factors, the things that work to mitigate climate change, have been talked about since the 1970s, I believe. It just didn't have the same uh, economic uh, oomph of Wall Street behind them. There's some, the General Accounting Office has issued a report on nuclear power. I wonder, let's talk about that for a little while. Let's talk about that report, how it came about, the methodology used, and uh, some of the criticisms of the NRC that are in the uh, GAO report. Well, this uh, report by the General Accounting Office, um, you know, which basically um, is a is a service to Congress, and ironically, um, this particular GAO report. Um, was commissioned by two proponents of nuclear power, um, Senator Tom Carper of Rhode Island and um, uh, uh, Senator Manchin of West Virginia, mm. uh, asked the GEO to look at uh, nuclear power resilience uh, in climate change uh-huh, uh-huh. and the um the gao surprised them um you know, as they were no doubt expecting to see um again something focused on you know nuke, nuclear power plants don't have smokestacks but the gao turned around and their report was entitled nuclear power plants nrc should take action to fully consider the potential effects of climate change and what the GAO identifies is that the U.S. Nuclear uh, uh, Regulatory uh, Commission is not factoring in um, fully the, um, the impacts of climate change 
on the operations of nuclear power. You know, uh, the they identify that NRC, um, you know, in its licensing process and oversight of nuclear power is accounting for the fact that, you know, nuclear power is not putting um, the you know, anywhere close to the equivalent of fossil fuel carbon emissions into the atmosphere. Um, And that's where the NRC's regulatory approach remains focused. Um, What the uh, GAO, however, does identify is that there needs to be more of the NRC attention paid to the impacts of an accelerating climate uh, mm-hmm. crisis mm-hmm. on the operations, and particularly, you know, what we would hope to be safe operations uh, when looking at these um, uh, the elevated temperatures, the you know more extreme cold weather, uh, drought affecting water levels that are needed to cool these reactors. Mm-hmm. You know the the spread of uncontrolled wildfire, uh, also spread by heat and drought, the the rise of sea level, um, and um, you know flooding, hurricanes. I mean, it's an extensive list. And uh, what uh, you know for the past two years, Beyond Nuclear has been engaged with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on what are becoming extremely longer. Uh, license renewals, uh-huh. uh, which are now getting extended out to 60 to 80 years. And um, what, what, we're, what we've identified is that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, in its response to our interventions, are saying that, that environmental, the environmental reviews it's doing for these uh, 20-year license extensions are um, it's climate change is out of the scope mm. of the NRC staff license review. They're not going to do it is what they're saying. And, uh, you know, we're preparing to take them to federal court based on the fact now that we have the support of the general accounting office in this uh, April 2024 mm. as new information to bolster our interventions that the NRC is falling short of the National Environmental Policy Act and its own regulations by ignoring the um, the accelerating impacts mm. on aging nuclear power plants, and they're not even looking to really incorporate it into these new designs. Mm. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about democracy and who gets to decide about our energy future. Sort of, uh, you know, a little bit off from what we're talking about here, but uh, that's what it's really about. You know, who gets to make these decisions? Our guest today is Paul Gunter, policy analyst and spokesperson for Beyond Nuclear, which... uh, is a uh, probably not particularly well-funded as compared to the nuclear industry, but uh, a well-organized uh, group that uh, is uh, real concerned about nuclear power. And isn't 
for for years the the other side has been saying that uh well these you know solar and wind those are all you know they're not they're just dreamy stuff they're not real we have to we have we need nuclear power in the meantime to to take us to when these uh other technologies can provide uh, enough electricity is that still the case i mean i see a lot more uh, uh wind generators these days than i used to see they look pretty they're always going well, if you look at the reports for 2024 from the United States Energy Information Administration, which is a part of the Department of Energy, there the U.S. government's own reports now are saying solar power will supply almost all new electricity growth uh Huh. for up until through 2025. So um, fully, um, you know, new solar growth uh, up through 2025 ex- is expected to be 75% coming from solar uh, photovoltaics. Um, and this is at utility grade scale. This, this I mean, they're, they're not even really counting what's going on um, residential roofing. Right. But the, uh, the, the, the big input is coming in from utilities that are now, um, uh, you know, producing uh, PV electricity generated. And this is also coming now with um, – with storage systems. Yes. Uh, so the the whole argument that you reference um, that's coming from um, fossil and fissile mm. industry is that, you know, that, you know, this is a, this is interim, you, you know, right. it, you, you don't get any electricity from solar at night. You don't get any electricity from wind when the when the wind is not blowing well, that that interim argument is rapidly diminishing by the fact that um, there is increasing, um, you know, investment, and uh, it's becoming it's becoming cheaper to commercially deploy. Um, battery storage, as well as other kinds of storage, just pumped water storage. Um, you know, you know, uh, the, the the Austria uh, is is about eighty percent renewables, um, and primarily because they have capitalized on pumped water storage for solar and wind. Um, but you know these are applications that are uh, accelerating very quickly um, here in the United States and and elsewhere. Um, but uh, they're st- they're still not getting the attention um, that uh, that where government is putting. Uh, you know they I, I I will recognize that the government is putting more and more money into solar and yes. wind. Yes. Um, but, um, you know, the problem here, Bert, is is that pouring more resources and wasting more precious time on nuclear is actually a diversion from the real solutions to an advancing climate change crisis. 
interesting way to put it. I think that makes makes a lot of sense. And uh, back to the GAO report, they they report in that report they put they point out a number of different things. One of which is that even closed and decommissioned nuclear power plants are vulnerable due to climate change induced weather extremes. Does, I'm guessing this has to do with the on-site storage of highly reactive, radioactive nu- uh, waste inventories because we still have not found a solution to store radioactive waste uh, permanently. So is, is that what they're saying there, that, that, that because of climate change-induced weather extremes, that uh, decommissioned plants are still vulnerable? Yes. Um, the, you know, there's, there's a few examples um, I think that primarily um, the sea level rise, you know, for Seabrook, that's a real problem. Yeah. Um, the, the projecting sea level rise is, is still highly unpredictable, although it's accelerating. I mean, we were, we're really behind the curve in terms of how quickly sea level rise will occur Um and how that's going to affect um, not just flooding but permanent inundation. Um, the uh, on the on the west coast, we're seeing um, you know, f- far more public concern with regard to this, this the siting of high level radioactive waste dry casks at a the, the closed San Onofre nuclear generation. Uh, generating station um, where within, you know, a hundred yards of the sea um, of the Pacific ocean, there are uh, these dry cask storage for irrated nuclear fuel, uh, basically on the beach. Um, And, um, you know, and and maybe only 20 feet above grade um above sea level Mm. um so um you know there are concerns not only but if you combine sea level rise with uh severe storms and uh, accelerated precipitation um Mm. you know you get um you get uh you get more severe flooding uh and more unpredictable um coastal damage but this is also true for inland waterways uh, mm-hmm. uh, lakes and reservoirs um, <clears throat> we're currently intervening at the Oconee nuclear power station in South Carolina primarily because Duke Energy has they simultaneously built uh, three nuclear power stations at Oconee in Seneca South Carolina directly below two very large dams. The Ucassi Dam uh, is 300, a 385-foot uh, uh, dam uh, that it is, uh, and the, uh, the uh, uh, Kiwi Dam that holds back about, those two dams hold back about 2 million uh, uh, mm. square acres of uh, acre feet of of uh, water in Lake Eucassee and Lake mm. Kiwi, and uh, the projections are that if a severe storm were to create um, uh, a mm-hmm. flood that overtopped those dams, 
that the Oconee nuclear power station would be under 19 feet of water. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? <laughs> it, would, it would actually be an inland tsunami. Uh, and for those three reactors, it would be the equivalent of the Fukushima Daiichi accident at three reactors as a result of a tsunami. Yeah, it's interesting how we tend to forget that and how, you know, Americans these days, you know, we forget everything. We forget January 6th. We forget uh, Three Mile Island, Fukushima, Daiichi, again, so long ago. But that's what the owners of the nuclear industry are counting on, people to forget and not know about such things. And, you know, aside from the rise in sea level that could affect the actual plants themselves. Roads are affected adversely by water. I mean, we've seen, you know, in a lot of storms, uh, roads suddenly become impassable. They, you know, they, the chunks of the road just disappear. There are uh, great holes in the, in the roads. And let's face it, evacuation is an issue. You know, who wants to be radiated? Nobody. I find it fascinating that, the current in a long line of owners of the Seabrook nuclear plant, Next Era, was recently on the news by saying they intended to reduce the requirements for its safety staff to have fewer people on the job and expand the requirement for notification from the current 60 minutes to 90 minutes. They must be convinced that it's just that safe. Why are they doing that? Bird, it's primarily cost reduction. Um, what NextEra has uh, proposed is to begin the consolidation uh, of its emergency operations centers, uh, 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 which includes Seabrook um, in, uh, you know, there in New Hampshire, uh, to uh, rely upon um, uh, a consolidated uh, emergency operations center in Florida that is uh, also consolidating uh, the Turkey Point nuclear power station south of Miami. Um, there's two reactors there. St. Lucie nuclear power station on, uh, on the uh, beach in uh, central Florida. There's two reactors there, along with two reactors uh, at Point Beach in Wisconsin. So a total of seven reactors um, in the eastern United States, with Seabrook being more than, you know, about 1,300 miles away from uh, the emergency operation that will be assisting it. Oh, um, and uh, again, it's, uh, it, it, you know, it, they are looking to downsize mm. their, um, their workforce um, and rely less on proximity to more on uh, uh -huh. extended communication systems. Wow. And um, let's not forget, you know, another one you know, of the features that we need to be uh, worried about and concerned about um, is the impact of other external hazards like solar storms. Um, you know, the, you know, solar storms, by the way, can impact um, communication systems. Right. And if, if we compensate for, you know, more on distant communication systems and less on proximity, 
that's going to be less defense in depth in the event of a large solar storm. Um, and, and, and again, that may sound like, um, you know, you know, being eccentric about this, but, you know, much was said that climate change was too far fetched right. to consider. But again, as the, you know, as the, 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 the these, these technology, these technologies become more complicated and um, and inherently dangerous. We need to be considering all of the external threats, yes. um, which now include clearly include climate change, but also we should be looking at things like solar storms. These things are real, folks. Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're speaking with Paul Gunter, policy analyst and spokesperson for Beyond Nuclear, about the. Uh, kind of resurgence of the nuclear industry. They're trying to put a new face on an old technology and say, oh, we need this at least temporarily. It's emission-free. Uh, they've long been known to be less than entirely forthcoming, <laughs> I think one could say. And it, this it, that uh, practice is certainly... Uh, considering. And I got to ask about nuclear waste. The nuclear industry has tried for over a half a century, maybe a lot more, to find some safe, permanent way to dis safely dispose of its waste. Trying for 50 years. Where does that stand today? Well, what we need to do is relook at this whole misconception of disposal. There's going to be no reliable, scientifically uh, acceptable or ethically acceptable disposal plan. Um, you know, that it's going to be about long-term management of mm. and, and biological isolation for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and the first and most responsible step in managing that is to stop generating right. more right and to cap the amount of waste that now 70 years mm. into this technology we still don't know what to do with the first cupful and we've got more than 300 thousand metric tons of irradiated fuel around the world what um, that we are presently just keeping primarily on site. Um, yes. On uh, you know every one of these reactors is is again located near major water sources um, and um, highly radioactive. Um, it, the storage co uh, containment right now is licensed on the basis of, of um, you know, a, a cask that has a uh, approximate 100-year design capacity for waste that's going to be 100,000 years mm -hmm. as a biological hazard. Um, Yucca Mountain in oh, Nevada right. was considered to be the final solution. Mm -hmm. It was all going to be shipped out there, but that has been abandoned now. Um, uh, not you know, it's been defunded, but you know, again, it 
it, it's been recognized as scientifically unfit because the um, the Yucca Mountain site is crisscrossed by earthquake faults and surrounded by some of the youngest volcanoes uh, in the northern hemisphere. Um, and uh, the, you know, these faults are evidenced with volcanic ash as well that run right through where the repository would be. Mm. Um, now we've shifted the focus to interim storage where they're just going to try to move it off-site so they can keep making more of it as these license mm. extensions you know, go out to uh, 60 to 80 years now. But they're going to move it to, um, you know, and create environmental justice problems where disadvantaged communities become the target. Right. You know, nobody's going to put high-level nuclear waste out on the Washington Mall, right. you know, right under the nose of, the, of Congress uh, or in other, uh, you know, uh, well-to-do communities, uh, it's always going to be targeted on disadvantaged communities. Of course. And that's just the story of this industry. That's the way it goes, and lots of industries are like that. Let's talk, before we head out of here, the Clamshell Alliance. Is, is There's a, a reborn, a renaissance of the nuclear industry, the big money nuclear industry. What about the Clamshell Alliance? They've, they've been around for a long time, everything from uh, they tried many different methods from putting a tie and jacket on, lobbying government bodies to ever larger demonstrations at the site. Uh, what about the clamshell alliance of the 2020s and what can people do to, you know, take on this revitalized nuclear industry? Well, um, you know, several years ago, um, th there was um, <clears throat> A number of uh, members of the Clamshell Alliance, you know, who got together um, to um, basically revitalize our vision from the 1970s um, that, you know, back then it was something to see a solar panel in the 1970s. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, even our, even in 1976, uh, October 76 was actually the first time I ever saw a solar panel. And it was out on Hampton beach at a rally that we held there uh -huh. at Hampton state park. Um, but, um, you know, it was a vision and it was the, the reaction to the fact that um, they were also talking about making more nuclear waste um, uh, out on the New Hampshire seacoast in a saltwater estuary. Um, and now here we are um, coming up on 50 years um, and um, the, you know, the idea that that dream is being realized at the same time, this industry has got a political hold on Capitol Hill and the White House still. Yeah. And there, the, the, if, the, if that vision, if that vision uh, that we had in the 1970s could still be squelched by uh, this incredibly wasteful, dangerous, and democratically dangerous uh, technology, 
associated with nuclear weapons development as right. well, right. then, you know, it's time for us to, uh, to get back and say that here we are as um, an older generation that needs to expand and uh, convince the younger generation yes. that there's more to the existential threat of climate change and nuclear weapons but also our energy policy. And, and we need to uh, basically counterpoint this resurgence from the nuclear industry that they are the answer to climate change when in fact they are the most dangerous, expensive, and unreliable distraction from real change. Well, what can people do? Is there something on the internet that, uh, for Beyond Nuclear or other organizations you can point the people to if they're concerned about this? Yes. Well, the Clamshell Alliance uh, has a website uh, that's up and running now. Uh, so I would direct you to um, the, uh, the Clamshell website. And there's also the uh, Beyond Nuclear website, Um uh, so the uh, yeah the beyond nuclear is uh, beyondnuclear.org yeah, simply easy enough and uh, we encourage you to uh, also look at our facebook page clamshell alliance also has a facebook page so for social media uh, folks uh, uh, take take a look well there was some pretty good organizing way back then and now with these social media Organizing is a, a much better possibility, new tools to do it. Paul Gunter, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. And uh, we, we are not powerless. We can make a difference. They're really, it, it doesn't have to go uh, the way the nuclear industry wants to, for sure. Thank you. No nukes. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.